This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second edition of Streaming Charts with Dan, which is kind of turning out to be more of an as-needed type show, or as I can fit it into the schedule. I'd intended to do it last week, but I was wiped out with illness. I was in bed for like three and a half days last week. It kind of pushed everything back, but it's actually okay because in addition to the streaming charts, which we'll get to, I'm also going to kind of structure the beginning of this episode with a story specifically around a streaming service. Last time we talked about the legal battle for South Park. This one is actually also tied in as we're going to talk about Paramount and Paramount Plus and some perilous financial news for that streaming service. So let's jump right into that first and then we'll get to the streaming charts after that. It has been a rough week for Paramount, the company, and Paramount Plus, the streaming service. The stock has actually been in free fall since last week when they revealed a first quarter loss of over $1 billion as a company due to a declining ad market, a slow movie release schedule, and over half a billion dollars in streaming investment. Not helping matters is the integration of Paramount Plus and Showtime, which resulted in what are called impairment charges of $1.67 billion. Impairment charges are sort of what we talked about earlier with HBO Max, the idea that when you take something off of your streaming platform, then that asset basically becomes valueless. So you write the cost of that asset down as a loss. It's basically having to do with taxes and financial, et cetera. So when they say they're taking an impairment charge of $1.67 billion, it essentially means that they removed shows and content from the Showtime slash Paramount Plus streaming platform, which makes those assets valueless because they're no longer available. They're not generating any kind of money. Impairment charges could also cover things like canceling contracts if you're not doing a project anymore or development costs for a show or a program that you decide not to go forward with. The hope is that you make back some of that money by either licensing that content or putting it on something like Pluto TV. Paramount also owns Pluto. You can put it on an ad-supported video-on-demand system, and that can also start generating income back. Paramount Plus and the direct-to-consumer streaming division alone lost $511 million despite adding over 4 million subscribers and increasing revenue. To put that in perspective, Deadline estimated that Top Gun Maverick was the second most profitable film of 2022 and brought in about $390 million in profit, like net proceeds, once you factor in all of the different things like box office and streaming, etc. So as big of a hit as Top Gun Maverick was, that $391 million profit on a corporate level is wiped out by one quarter's worth of streaming losses. That's just how much money is going into the streaming division still over at Paramount. And really, this just underlines the main challenge that so many of these companies have, which is that, yes, you can grow because Paramount Plus is adding subscribers, but at the same time, in order to generate that growth, you have to invest 
heavily in content. And right now, Paramount is investing way more into streaming content than they're able to bring in. Last Wednesday, shares in Paramount were worth just under $23. As of the close of the stock market, this Wednesday, they're worth under $16. And the company also cut their quarterly dividend, which is the amount per share returned to stockholders from $0.24 cents to $0.05. Cents. And just for a little bit of perspective, Paramount has been paying their stockholders a $0.24 cent per quarter dividend since 2019. So all through the pandemic and everything, that dividend has not changed. And a dividend drop like that, of course, spooks investors because it basically says whatever you were making from your investment in this stock, you are now making substantially less per quarter. It encourages people to sell the stock. The stock price drops. That's just how these things work. Paramount CEO Bob Backish said the company's quote, focused on continuing to drive market-leading streaming growth while navigating a dynamic macroeconomic environment, which in layman terms means that they basically want to build the winning streaming service while also trying to figure out an economic environment that makes it incredibly difficult for them to do so. Paramount's already responded by announcing that 25% of its staff across all TV divisions in the United States are being laid off as those divisions consolidate, with some parts of the company, like MTV News, shutting down completely. Although personal opinion here, the MTV division overall might be just a little bit more profitable if today's television schedule didn't consist of, and this is actual, this is not an exaggeration, 15 hours of ridiculousness, six hours of catfish, and three whole hours of original programming. And believe it or not, things could actually get worse for Paramount soon because one of their major investors is Warren Buffett. He bought a lot of Paramount stock, and according to Yahoo Finance, Warren Buffett is expected to release a statement called a 13F next week, which details all of his stock holdings and his companies. Should it show that he either sold off or reduced his stake in Paramount, that could further scare investors and drive the stock price down even further. And having billions of dollars in content costs debt isn't new. It's the story of almost every major streamer. The big question now is how quickly can they start to recoup those investments and when does that investment slow down? Now we've seen some services like Netflix cut back on their spend for original content, but Paramount's spend on original content isn't expected to peak until later this year, which means they're not yet done. They haven't even reached the pinnacle of pouring cash into this machine before they start pulling back. A Wall Street Journal report last week claimed that the company spends around half a billion dollars a year on the Taylor Sheridan Yellowstone franchise alone, with the prequel series 1923 coming in at a reported cost of $22 million per episode and over $200 million for the entire season. The report also claimed that Sheridan, already paid millions as a creator, writer, and director, is also compensated up to $50,000 a week to allow shooting on his Texas ranches. Paramount justified these costs by saying that Yellowstone is one of their most successful and profitable shows. But again, this just underlines how much money they are putting into trying to win the streaming war through sheer content. Half a billion dollars on one franchise alone. That doesn't count any kind of money that they're laying out for their movie studio or for Star Trek or anything else that's on any of their streaming services. Just one set of shows. 
Paramount Plus may have some creative success. Picard Season 3 was my favorite season of that show so far. But the reality is that they have pumped so much money into the streaming service, and yet it's still nebulous when it's going to even start turning a profit, much less when you're going to be able to start recouping some of that investment that you've put into everything. And for that exact reason, one Wall Street analyst, Wells Fargo's Stephen Cahall, has recommended that Paramount change direction and give up on direct to consumer streaming altogether. In an investment note, Cahal wrote, we think streaming losses could remain elevated with low clarity on break-even or long-term profitability. In fact, we think direct-to-consumer will only be meaningfully profitable for the biggest scale players. And he specifies later on that that's Netflix and Disney Plus and perhaps HBO Max. With both linear and direct-to-consumer presenting challenges, Paramount is likely to have negative revisions and tough decisions, which could include reconsidering sports rights or shifting strategy. Cahill has been skeptical of Paramount's strategy for quite some time, and last year on CNBC was already questioning the streamer's strategy when it comes to content. How long are investors going to have to wait for them to lose money, potentially, at least in your opinion? You know, you look at the direct-to-consumer playing field, and, and you know this, uh, you know, it's, it's Disney, Apple, Amazon, Comcast, Netflix. These are really large-scale players you've got to compete against to get that profitability back. So I think investors are kind of looking at this and saying, Paramount has great content, but they may not be monetizing it as well as they could uh, under this self-distribution streaming strategy. The idea of being an arms dealer in the streaming wars, which basically means that you don't have your own service where you are creating your own content, you're putting it on that service in the hopes that people are going to come and subscribe, but instead you make a movie or a TV show and you license that for a fee to another streaming service. This strategy is something that's really only been embraced by one major studio, which is Sony. In just the last two years, Sony made a $500 million global licensing deal for Seinfeld to Netflix, as well as a five-year deal to license their new films and some library titles in the U.S. to Netflix first and then Disney. Both of those deals have been speculated to bring in up to $3 billion or more over those five years. They also recently signed a deal with the Canadian streaming service Crave for distribution of their films in Canada. Long story short, Sony is making billions of dollars by licensing their content and also avoiding saddling themselves with the billions of dollars of debt that their other competitors have done by setting up their own streaming services. The biggest foray that Sony has made into the streaming world is Crunchyroll. Sony was able to acquire Funimation and then Crunchyroll and merge them in a deal over a billion and a half dollars that some at the time thought was an overspend. But now that anime has absolutely exploded in popularity, many analysts believe that Sony actually got a good deal on Crunchyroll and reportedly that service is already profitable. There is a timeline where Sony didn't sell Crackle and instead invested billions of dollars into making Crackle their own profitable streaming service. But right now, as everybody else is saddled with debt and looking for a way out, Sony's actually in a pretty good position streaming-wise. Even the big streamers, the ones that the investors and the analysts like Stephen Cahill believe can turn a profit, long term 
are facing issues with the marketplace and having to change their strategies accordingly. Netflix cut its spending on original content by over a billion dollars in the first quarter of 2023 compared to the first quarter of 2022. Of course, David Zaslav's early regime at Warner Discovery was dominated by decisions to remove content from the HBO Max streaming service and write it off as a loss, a move that was deemed by many to be heartless penny-pinching, myself included. But just yesterday, Disney revealed that they will be doing the same thing after a quarter that saw subscriber losses worldwide and in the United States continue. Disney now plans to write down between $1.5 to $1.8 billion in programming that they'll be removing from their services in addition to a cut in original content spending. Disney Chief Financial Officer Christine McCarthy told investors, quote, we are in the process of reviewing the content on our direct-to-consumer services to align with the strategic changes in our approach to content curation. As a result, we will be removing certain content from our streaming platforms and currently expect to take an impairment charge of approximately $1.5 to $1.8 billion. The charge, which will not be recorded in our segment results, will primarily be recognized in the third quarter as we complete our review and remove the content, which means by the end of the fall, we could see some significant amount of content disappear from Disney+, Plus, Hulu, the Disney streaming services. Where that content goes, we don't quite know. It could be licensed to another streaming service. It could get put on an AVOD, which is video on demand, but supported by advertising something like a Pluto TV. That is the new strategy. David Zosloff was the first person to do it, but now so many of these other streamers are as well. Disney CEO Bob Bob Iger said, quote, when you make a lot of content, everything needs to be marketed. You're spending a lot of money marketing things that are not going to have an impact on the bottom line, except negatively due to the marketing costs. But we were spreading our marketing costs so thin that we were not allocating enough money to even market them when they came onto the service. Coming up, Avatar, Little Mermaid, Guardians of the Galaxy, Elemental, etc., where we actually believe we have an opportunity to lean into those more, put the right marketing dollars against it, allocate more basically away from programming that was not driving any subs at all. Long story short, it sounds like Disney is going to take a look at the things that are sitting on their different streaming services. If it doesn't look like something that's bringing in new viewers or retaining new viewers, it may disappear. Is that the National Treasure series that had one season? Is that Willow that had one season? That's going to be their decision. They're going to look at the metrics, but you could see things like those disappearing very soon. So it sounds to me like the new strategy is to put marketing dollars behind big theatrical tentpole releases that people will then want to watch at home. And then for small smaller programming support them with advertising instead of putting them directly onto a streaming service, which to me sounds exactly like the way that things used to work before any of this happened. And actually, after years of things splitting apart, consolidation also does appear to be one of the new strategies. We had Paramount Plus and Showtime combining into one app. We had HBO Max and Discovery Plus combining into one app. And again, Disney now following suit with the announcement yesterday that by the end of the year, Disney Plus and Hulu will be combined into one app. You'll be able to get them both in one interface, but you'll have to subscribe to both of them in order to get all of that programming, which will encourage consumers consumers to bundle, which is basically buy Disney Plus and Hulu together so that you can get everything in one place. It's sort of like when cable companies used to take a bunch of channels and combine them into one package, and then you used to buy that bundle so that you could get everything in the same place. So once again, the new strategy kind of seems like the way that things used to work before. The point of bringing the big streamers into this, Netflix, Disney, etc., is that if even the industry leaders 
are facing these problems and having to cut back spending and combine apps and look at marketing and take things off of their platforms, then what hope is there possibly for some of these other streaming services like Paramount Plus? And at the beginning, I get it. Everybody wanted to create the new Netflix, the service that everybody flocked to. But as the dust begins to settle and it becomes very obvious that we are past the peak point for consumers as far as being able to get a cheap streaming service with a lot of available options, as the prices go up and the things get pulled off of the service, then I think it is time to reevaluate just where we stand. And this is basically where we are. Netflix continues to be the big dominant leader in streaming, followed very close by Disney with Hulu and Disney Plus, and we'll see if Disney actually ends up buying out Comcast stake in Hulu and owning it outright by the end of this year. I think that that's probably likely given the integration now with Disney Plus. We have the launch of HBO Max, which will soon be rebranded to Max, which I think given the volume of content and the fact that they have a pretty good library, stands a good chance at being around for quite a while. Then we have Amazon and Apple, which are just crazy companies. Their streaming services are like one tiny wing of what they do so they'll probably stay there as long as it makes accounting sense to keep those departments open but everybody else I think the writing on the wall is starting to become very clear because Paramount would have to triple their subscriber base to even match where either Netflix or Disney Plus are right now and by the way they would still be facing the same market challenges that they're facing right now. So I think the question you have to ask with Paramount Plus and probably any of the other ones, Peacock, AMC, all of these other various streaming services that have popped up over the last several years, is just how much more debt will they be allowed to accrue before somebody starts having the conversation about making a very difficult decision to turn away from direct-to-consumer streaming. Is it $1 billion of extra debt? Is it $2 billion of extra debt? Is it in three or four years when the date passes and Paramount Plus still isn't profitable? What is that breaking point for the companies, for the investors, when they say, wait a minute, we really need to just stop pumping hundreds of millions of dollars into this thing that may not ever turn a profit. And oh, by the way, we also have billions of dollars of licensable content sitting on this platform right now, not making us any money that we can take to Disney or Netflix or Hulu tomorrow and bring in 500, 600, 700, a billion dollars, depending on how much we license to them. Many years ago, I asked the question of how Netflix could keep pumping money into everything they do forever, and I was told that I just didn't understand the economics of Netflix. And many years ago, I asked the question of how everybody could have their own streaming service and the fact that none of them could all survive, and I was told that I just didn't understand the economy of streaming services. But I'm starting to think that maybe I understand that economy a little bit more than some people gave me credit for, because it seems very obvious that we are going to be in the end game for more more than one of these streaming services in the next, I would estimate, three to five years. But if there's one thing that's been proven in Hollywood over and over, it's that the only thing that can possibly trump corporate profits is corporate ego. And there's a lot of people that aren't going to want the shame of being the first one to call it quits. And listen, I get it. I was part of a streaming service that didn't work. And it was very humbling for us to say, well, all this cost us was a bunch of time and a bunch of money, and we didn't really get a whole lot out of it. But you know what? Sometimes you just have to do that. The big question is, who's going to be the first one to make that call? We've got much more to get to, but before we do, I want to thank this week's sponsor. 
This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the makers of AG1. We are getting into the summer season. A lot of people are doing more stuff outdoors, and no matter what your day has in store, AG1 is a great way to start that day. I got into doing it because it was hard for me to get into the routine of taking daily supplements, but eating breakfast is something I do every day. So regardless of what I've got planned, whether I'm going to be outside or inside making videos, when I make my breakfast shake, I throw in a scoop of AG1, and it makes me feel like I'm covering my nutritional bases. It's really helped me with digestion and gut health, which have been focuses of mine, but it's also great to know that I'm giving my body so many of the things that it needs, and that's what it was designed to do. AG1 is here to help you live easier and better without having to change a lot. It's just one scoop of powder mixed with water once a day, making it easy to live your best life, and every scoop is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients and delivered to me every month, so it's easy to make it a daily habit. If you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com Dan. That's athleticgreens.com Dan. Check it out. All right, so we've got our big streaming story of the week out of the way. Let's look now at the streaming charts, which is what you will find in the show, Streaming Charts with Dan. And let's start, first of all, at what people are watching over on the iTunes store. It's a very interesting chart here because it is only 20%. I think two out of these 10 are traditional rentals, and it just goes to show you how the economy of renting things has changed in the last three to five years or so. At number one is Evil Dead Rise, which is available for purchase and premium video on demand, which is those high-priced 1999 rentals. And second place is Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, also available for purchase and premium video on demand. Then in third place, Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, available just for premium video on demand. So the top three films, all movies that are still in the box office top 10. In fourth place is Avatar The Way of Water, currently only available for purchase, followed by The Pope's Exorcist, available for purchase and premium video on demand. Renfield, available for purchase and premium video on demand. Knock at the Cabin, which has finished its Peacock window and streaming exclusives, etc. It's now available for purchase and rental. Ant-Man and the Lost Quantumania will be debuting soon on Disney+, Plus, but it is currently only available for purchase at number 8 on the chart there. At number 9 is Beautiful Disaster, which had an eventized release and is now available for purchase and rental. And at number 10 is Creed 3, available currently for purchase only. We're backlogged a little bit on our Netflix charts, so let's take a look back at the last several weeks of the Netflix Top 10 and then an update on the top programs of the year. As a reminder, these are measured by what I call my Global Merle Metrics. It generates a number called the PFV, or Potential Finished Views. I take the length of a program, I divide it by the number of hours watched, and that gives me how many Netflix users could potentially have finished viewing that program. It just kind of puts everything on a more even keel. And we will start with the week of April 17th through the 23rd, which saw the continued dominance of the Netflix original movie, The Last Kingdom, Seven Kings Must Die, followed by the Netflix original series, Obsession, and the Netflix movie, Queens on the Run. In fourth place is the debut of The Diplomat, Carrie Russell's new series from the West Wing and Homeland writer, Deborah Kahn. That had a PFV of 8.63, followed by A Tourist Guide to Love, a Rachel Lee Cook Vietnam rom-com. 
PFV of 8.38 in fifth place. Then at number six, this was a pandemic movie. I remember this one being on the rental charts. Kevin Costner and Diane Lane in Let Him Go with a PFV of 7.51. Beef Season 1 staying on the top 10 chart with a PFV of 7.38. Then the special Mighty Morphin Power Rangers Once and Always, which united several generations of Rangers, is at number eight. That's why I do the PFV number, because that's a very low hours watch number, but it was a short special. The PFV of 7.20 gets it into the top 10. The Night Agent Season 1, still a popular show on Netflix with a PFE of 6.97. And then at number 10, the second season of the Colombian thriller The Marked Heart rounds out the list. Looking at the week of April 24th through the 30th, at number one is the Netflix original movie, or at least here in the States, AKA, which has been very popular the last few weeks. It's a French action import starring Alban Lenoir as a special ops agent. AKA brought in a PFE of 16.6, meaning 16.6 million potential finished views. A Tourist Guide to Love is at number two. The Diplomat Season 1 at number three. At number four with a PFE of 9.06 is The Nurse, a limited series from Denmark that actually seems kind of similar to that Eddie Redmayne movie, The Good Nurse, which was released last year. At number five is the debut weekend of Sweet Tooth Season 2, the latest installment in the best show on Netflix to feature a boy-deer hybrid character. It has been picked up for a third and final season, and it debuted with a PFE of 6.98. At number six is the debut of Welcome to Eden Season 2, the second season of the imported series from Spain, with a PFE of 6.23. The Mark Tart Season 2 is at number seven. At number eight is Chokehold, a Turkish thriller marketed as a Netflix original here stateside with a PFE of 5.72. The Night Agent Season 1 is at number 9, and The Last Kingdom, Seven Kings Must Die, is at number 10. And here we have the latest Netflix chart for the week of May 1st through the 7th. AKA stays at number one with a PFE of 25.16. Close behind is the Bridgerton spinoff series, Queen Charlotte, with 148.2 million hours watched, which is good enough for a PFE of 22.99. That's a very high number for an original series because they're much longer. Sweet Tooth Season 2 is at number three with a PFE of 8.73, followed by The Nurse at number four. At number five, one of those licenses licensed Sony films, A Man Called Otto, a PFE of 6.42 with 13.4 million hours watched. Pitch Perfect is at number six with a PFE of 6.15. At number seven, a film in the later filmography of Bruce Willis, Wrong Place with a PFE of 6.06. Then at number eight, we have the Michelle Pfeiffer 1999 drama, The Deep End of the Ocean with a PFE of 5.80. At number nine, The Taylor Season 1, which is an imported Turkish drama series with a PFE of 5.56. And at number 10, The Diplomat Season 1. Looking at the most watched 2023 Netflix programs, not a lot of change on this chart from a few weeks ago. Murder Mystery 2 remains the most watched program of the year with a PFE of 103.82. So the only program so far to have a potential finished view number over 100 million. The Night Agent Season 1 rising up to number 2 on the list with a PFE of 89.4. Luther the Fallen Sun falls one spot to number 3. You People falls one spot to number 4. And then numbers 5 through 10 remain the same. Your Place or Mine at number 5. Jenny and Georgia season two at number six Wednesday season one the holdover from 2022 still strong enough to have it there at number seven we have a ghost at number eight you season four at number nine and the pale blue eye at number 10 aka though is knocking on the door and we will see it on this list the next time we check 
Let's look now at metrics from another major service, which is Nielsen, which is able to cross-measure data from several different sources. Now, this is not direct from the streamers. This is a third-party measurement from Nielsen. It only measures U.S. streaming data, and it's about a month delayed. So this is not exactly current, but they're the most current numbers that we have. And I think a new one of these will probably come out today or tomorrow. So we'll update on that chart the next time we do the show. But let's look, first of all, at the Nielsen streaming movie chart for March 27th through April 2nd, so a little over a month ago. At number one was the debut weekend of Murder Mystery 2, which logged 18.7 million hours watched in the U.S., followed by the original Murder Mystery at number two with just over 7 million hours watched. I See You on Netflix is at number three. Moana, the most popular movie recently on Disney+, Plus, is at number four. Top Gun Maverick streaming on Paramount+, Plus is at number five. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, at number six. Dragged Across Concrete at number seven. Encanto, which we often see on this chart, is at number eight. Nope on Amazon is at number nine. And The Bourne Legacy on Netflix is at number 10. Going to the next chart, April 3rd through the 9th, Murder Mystery 2 remains on top of the chart with 14.5 million hours watched, followed by The Born Legacy making a jump up there to number 2. Chupa debuted on Netflix that week for a 6.8 million hours watched number, followed by Shark Tale on Netflix with 6.1 million hours watched, and Over the Hedge on Netflix with 5.6 million hours watched. We often see a lot of turnover new movies the first week of the month because that's when a lot of new films are put onto the Netflix streaming service. So that's why we see a lot of new films and not particularly original films here. At number six is Matilda, the 90s original with Mara Wilson, 5.2 million hours watched, followed by Murder Mystery at number seven, Hotel Transylvania on Netflix at number eight with 4.4 million hours watched, Moana at number nine with 3.6 million hours watched, and Top Gun Maverick, which as of this week was also streaming on Amazon Prime. So this is combined hours watched from Paramount Plus and Amazon Prime Video, 3.4 million hours watched. Looking at the most watched streaming movies in the U.S. through April 9th by total hours viewed, Black Panther Wakanda Forever remains easily on top with 73.6 million hours watched, followed by You People on Netflix at 64.3 million hours. Minions The Rise of Gru is at number three. Moana rises to number four with 42.4 million hours watched, followed by Your Place or Mine dropping one spot to number five. Murder Mystery 2 enters the chart at number six with 33.2 million hours watched. That Drops Luther the Fallen Sun down to number seven. We have a ghost down to number eight, Glass Onion to number nine, and Encanto to number 10. Let's look now at the 10 most watched streaming shows, according to Nielsen, and we'll go back to March 27th through April 2nd. The Night Agent on Netflix dominating this chart, 50.9 million hours watched. Love is Blind coming in about 30 million hours behind at number two with 20.6 million hours. The Mandalorian on Disney Plus at number three with 14.6 million hours, followed by Coco Melon at number four, Bluey at number five, South Park at number six, NCIS, which is split between Netflix and Paramount Plus, is at number seven. Grey's Anatomy is at number eight. And then two new entries, Ted Lasso making its return on Apple TV Plus with 9.5 million hours watched and Emergency New York City on Netflix at number 10 with just over 9 million hours watched. And then looking at the week of April 3rd through the 9th, The Night Agent remains at number one with 30.8 million hours watched, followed by Love is Blind at number two with 19.2 million. The Mandalorian at number three with 17.1 million. So a tightening up there in the top two to three spots. 
Beef entering the chart at number four with just over 16 million hours watched, followed by Bluey, South Park, Coco Melon, NCIS, Ted Lasso, and Grey's Anatomy. And then a return to something that you asked me about and that I will try to keep doing week by week. I didn't have the data to do this for uh, the previous weeks, but the top streaming shows watch time per available episode for April 3rd to the 9th. At number one was The Night Agent with a full complement of 10 episodes and an hour's watch per episode of 3.09. Beef is at number two with 10 episodes and 1.6 million hours watched per episode. Then we have Unstable with eight episodes, just over 800,000 hours watched per episode. The Mandalorian at number four with 781,000 hours watched per episode, followed by Emergency New York City at number five, Coco Melon at number six, Ted Lasso at number seven, Shadow and Bone hitting this chart with just over 400,000 hours watched per episode, Love is Blind at number nine, and Succession making the hours watched per episode chart at just over 213,000 hours per episode. And finally, looking at the most watched streaming series in the U.S. through April 9th, some changes here. Coco Melon rises to the number one spot with 182.8 million hours watched. NCIS, a close number two with 181.5 million hours watched. Ginny and Georgia drops to number three with 174.1 million hours. Bluey at number four with 160 million hours. You at number five with 149.1 million. The Walking Dead's at number six with 145.7 million. Just ahead of The Last of Us on HBO Max. Keep in mind that that does not include people that watched it on cable. This is just people that watched it through the streaming service. Outer Banks is at number eight on Netflix with 143.6 million hours, followed by Grey's Anatomy at number nine, and The Night Agent breaking onto the list at number 10 at just over 125 million hours watched. And that does it for the news and the chart recap. Opening this week, we have a lot of different options across several different streaming services. Here are just a few of them. Streaming right now is the hotly debated Netflix series, Queen Cleopatra. And if you think I'm stepping into that debate, you've got something else coming because I'm not touching it. Also streaming, let's go with something a little less controversial. The Muppets Mayhem Season 1, now streaming on Disney+. Plus. Still, a Michael J. Fox movie, which is a documentary, is streaming this Friday on Apple TV+. Plus. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Also streaming on Friday is the animated series Mulligan from the creators of 30 Rock and producer Tina Fey with voiceover work from Daniel Radcliffe. It's an animated series about the end of the world and it looks kind of interesting. Also on Friday, the newest South Korea Netflix co-production Black Knight, a post-apocalyptic series, will be hitting streamers everywhere. The Mother, starring Jennifer Lopez and directed by Nikki Caro, will be streaming on Netflix starting this Friday. Also on Friday on Paramount+, Plus, RuPaul's Drag Race Season 8 has its two-episode premiere. The Great Season 3, starring Elle Fanning and Nicholas Holt, will be streaming on Hulu this Friday, the full season. Also on Netflix, Season 7 of Queer Eye will be streaming starting on Friday. And also on Friday, we have the streaming debut of Air on Amazon Prime after its box office run about the courting of Michael Jordan to Nike. It was a really, really good movie. If you didn't catch it in theaters, I highly recommend catching it on Prime. And I don't quite know what the schedule will allow, but next Friday on Hulu, if you want to mark it down on your calendars, is the remake of White Men Can't Jump, just in case we don't get an episode in before then. And that does it for this edition of Streaming Charts with Dan. Thank you so much for joining me. Be sure to join me back here on the channel for more movie news reviews, box office charts, and more. Until next time, thank you so much for watching, and I'll see you then. Bye.